0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the Psalm numbered 61. The Psalm numbered 61. We want to just read from verse 1 through to the verse 8 of this Psalm. Whenever the Reverend McLaughlin asked me earlier this week if I could come and minister this morning, I, of course, was naturally honoured to respond to the invitation to come. But during that day, I was meditating on this psalm, and I felt that the Lord would have me to minister to you what the Lord has very graciously ministered to me. It's somewhat easy, I suppose, for a retired minister, whenever he is asked to speak, to uh, put his hand up to the shelf in the library and pull out a sermon that has been preached before. It's probably very easy and natural to do that. But I'm very much convinced in my heart that there is a difference between a sermon and the Lord's message. We all can preach sermons and that is a wonderful privilege to do that. But it is the Lord's message that we must seek to deliver. And Paul said that what he had received from the Lord... That also he delivered unto the people. And I know every Sabbath day I'm privileged to be here. I always am consciously aware of hearing the Lord's message. I trust it will be so this Sabbath day. Psalm 61, reading from verse 1. Hear my cry, O God, attend on to my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Israel. For thou, O God, hast heard my voice, thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Thy will prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever, O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So will I sing praise unto thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. We end a reading there at the verse 8 of the Psalm 61, knowing that God will add his blessing to the public reading of his precious word. It is impossible for any human instrument restricted by personal limitations and hindered by fleshly weaknesses to adequately describe the pressures that are concentrated upon the heart of every dear Bible believer. To simply focus on the spiritual challenges that daily confront all of us who are born again of God the Holy Spirit would in and of itself be an overloading of the mind. But when we add the circumstantial situations that invade into our physical And our mental structures, we are forced to exclaim who is sufficient for these things. Now it is possible that some in this gathering are in a state of heart that is free from the internal and external maladies that dominate the thinkings of others. And to such dear people, I urge a spirit of humble gratitude that is reflective of your favoured position. But to many of us, the testimony of the psalmist in the 61st Psalm is more in keeping with our experiences of life. When my heart is overwhelmed. Now the word overwhelmed indicates that the heart was either submerged, engulfed, saturated, or inundated by any number of threatening circumstances that had the potential to leave the Lord's servant in a state that from a human perspective he wondered if he ever would recover. But he did recover and that to such a degree he ends the psalm engaged in a song of praise that had become his daily exaltation of the one Who he describes as higher than I. Now, the challenge that I prayerfully desire to focus on is our need to try and come to an understanding of how a child of God can best interpret why they should have this intimate acquaintance with being overwhelmed. In other words, I long to be the instrument in God's gracious hand to lead you this Lord's Day morning to the safety of that rock. To describe this as a vitally important meditation would, in my own view, be an underestimation. For it brings all of us into an area of life where some might even conclude, God has either forsaken me or else he has forgotten me. And it is against that background that I draw your attention to a number of points, all of which can only become helpful when applied to our hearts by the blessed Holy Spirit. The first is the programming of the discerner. I use the words programming and discerner to establish a twofold principle that enables me to draw from it this assurance that all things work together for good uh, to them that love the Lord. Now, once my heart retreats to this truth, it is an acknowledgement that the afflictions with which I am now troubled has not befallen me uh, through an accident of which I am the unfortunate casualty but rather through the counsel of the one who in knowing what I have need of has planned accordingly. While momentarily I struggle to come to terms with my personal plight, I'm constrained to enter into the spirit of the Apostle Paul when he referred to his own experience in this way. Our light affliction Which is, but for a moment, it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. But there's a problem. A major problem. How is it possible that any affliction, whether light or heavy, could possibly be described as working for us? To most of us, I would suggest that at the least in the initial hours of our heart being overwhelmed, we would echo the words of Jacob in Genesis 42 and verse 36, all these things are against me. I'm sure you've been there. And to that end, we must search for the evidence That brings together the truth of Matthew 6 and 32, For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, with the words of Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. If I can be brought to appreciate that there is a great treasury of spiritual benefits awaiting me in the darkest recesses of my trials, then the words of Job 5 verse 8 would prove inspirational when he said, I would seek unto God and unto God would I commit my cause which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Now I learn from Psalm 145 verse 3 that God's greatness is unsearchable insomuch as that enables me to accept that while forces combine together uh, to inflict my heart with an overwhelming spirit are indeed great, God's greatness extends far and beyond their intimidating pressurization. But God's word also points me to another area of my life where I can come face to face with the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, the apostle testifies to preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is at the cross that I can behold the implementation of God's program on the basis of his revealed discernment. For neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And what is true of my beloved Lord Jesus Christ is also true of me and true of you who are saved by his grace. We also will be despised and rejected of men. We too will enter the lonely pathway of personalized sufferings. We will have moments when our lives will be characterized by a Gethsemane-type experience. And we will even question, at least in our thoughts, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But all these things combine together to present us with the riches of Christ, thereby making us the spiritually richer and not the poorer. Here the words of Isaiah 27 verse 9 are very appropriate. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And in Hebrews 12 verse 10 when dealing with matters that were of an overwhelming nature the Holy Spirit speaks of God programming our chastening that we will ultimately accept his overall discernment that it is for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. When by faith I unconditionally embrace this truth. I am drawn into the words of the Apostle James, who, at the earliest possible moment in his epistle, said, "My brethren, counted all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience." The second point that I want to impress upon you is this. The promise of the disciplinarian. Already we've alluded to God's disciplinarian ministry in the chastening of his people. And the fact that his followers were identified as disciples confirms that God executes his work through divinely revealed standards. Standards that directly challenge my self-imposed feelings of self-pity and of self-indulgence. For a low like David, in Psalm 118 verse 18, we are constrained on occasions to accept the Lord hath chastened me sore. We can still most emphatically acknowledge, but he hath not given me over unto death which is, in effect, an everlasting covenant that he will never take away his loving kindness from us. A truth that he is powerfully underwritten in 2 Samuel 7 when he was communicating to King David the details concerning his son Solomon. He said, I will be his father, and he shall be my son, If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him. Although the little eaglet in the nest must be initially confused in its mind as to why the eagle is stirring up the nest and forcing it over the edge. And when it seems as if it is falling to its death, the mother flies beneath its offspring, spreading abroad her wings, taking it up and burying it upon her wings, brings it back to the nest. Just as God does for we, his beloved people. For if it is, and we believe it is, the natural instinct of the eagle to preserve its young, how much more is our Heavenly Father committed to the preservation of every man of every woman whom he describes as the apple of his eye. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 add further comfort to this thought when he declared to God the Father, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name, those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Now, if God had cut me off from his mercies, I covenanted my soul. I might have reason to feel that I am submerged under a burden from which I will find no relief. But that is not the case. For like Israel in the days of Ezra, we can say we were born men, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. But have extended mercy unto us, and now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to lighten our eyes and to give us a little reviving in our bondage. I earnestly pray that if you're passing through a difficult time in your heart this morning and you feel a sense of being overwhelmed, that you will find refuge in the unfailing promises of Him who exercises His discipline for our benefit, but ultimately for His glory. The third point I want to mention when our hearts are overwhelmed is the planning of the distribution. One of the most trusted people in the employment of the sovereign, whether king or queen, is the person identified as the cupbearer. That is, the individual who is responsible for making sure that there is nothing in the sovereign's drink that is contaminated with something that would make the taste bitter or worse still, contain some poisonous ingredient. Nehemiah, for example, occupied this special role in his service for the king of Persia. The cupbearer must first sample the contents of the cup in order to ascertain its suitability and its wholesomeness for the one who sat upon the throne. This was an essential part of his planning before he would distribute the required beverage. And please do not consider for a moment that your heavenly Father will put poison into the cup that he has delivered to me and delivered to you. Do not I, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto my children? Even so doth our heavenly Father give the Holy Ghost to them that ask of him. Listen, please. To what he desires to hear us, to hear us record from Jeremiah 25, verse 6. He said, I will do you no hurt. Those are Price's words. I sat with a dear man, a friend of mine this week, who is going through a really hard and difficult time. Very vulnerable, very fragile in the spirit. And before we started the conversation, he said, Mr. Michael Vane, I want to ask you to do something or not to do something. Don't say anything that will hurt me. And I quoted that verse from Jeremiah 25, verse 6, where the Lord says to his troubled people, I will do you no hurt. Dear child of God, you and I lie too near to the heart of our Saviour for Him to hurt us He loves you too much to hurt you and I am certain that you have noticed that as the Lord Jesus Christ distributed the bread and the wine in the upper room that we read He took the cup when He had supped saying In other words, he drank from the cup first. And whatever you're passing through today in your heart, in your life's experience, can I say reverently to you that the Lord Jesus Christ has tasted that cup before he has given it to you. He has tasted the cup of loneliness. He has tasted the cup of rejection He has tasted the cup of sorrow. He has even tasted the cup of death. And in light of that, there is nothing more grievous to him than my groundless and unworthy suspicions that he has not had my best interest at the very centre of his planning. Well did William Cowper pen the words Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The programming of the discerner, the promise of the disciplinarian, the planning of the dis- distribution. <laughs> but when our hearts are overwhelmed, we are helped in knowing that God has provided our defense, the providing of the defense. It is abundantly clear from the Word of God that our Heavenly Father does not diminish His interest in us because we are in a low state spiritually. Neither does He leave us exposed to the adversarial forces of discouragement, despair, and depression. No, graciously, He has recorded for us how He provides the defense as He did for His servant David when his child was stripped of all earthly comforts and when his fellow soldiers, uh, they turned against him. Uh, And we read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, uh, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. That was his defense. Clearly, God had no less respect for his servant when his heart was overwhelmed than he did when his heart was distinguished as the overcomer. In fact, it can be scripturally presented that God manifests more of his love, more of his grace, more of his tenderness. When our days are days of affliction rather than days of prosperity. Listen to Psalm 116 verse 6. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Men's opinion of us may indeed change. Depending on the variation or the alteration of our circumstances, they may grow cold towards us at a time when we feel defenseless against the changes in our lives that are difficult for us to understand. But the words, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, are amplified through the words of Psalm 14, verse 2. I looked in my right hand. And beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. No man cared for my soul. But thou art my portion. The word portion simply means to share. So whatever you and I are passing through as a dear child of God your Heavenly Father is sharing that with you and He will defend you from the voice of those who would suggest to you curse God and I for please remember there is not a pain that rends the human heart that the blessed Saviour has not a part. And for that reason, the psalmist said in Psalm 59, verse 9, because of his strength, will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. It is not my strength. My strength is weak. My strength is low. But because of his strength, I will wait upon thee, For God is my defense, the providing of the defense. My fifth and final point is the prospect of the distressed. The text speaks of being led to the rock that is higher than I. This I can understand figuratively. It makes sense to be lifted to a place of safety in the natural sense But we walk by faith and not by sight. So in light of this, our prospect during our time of distress must have a spiritual dimension, and it does. At the commencement of the Lord's message today, references made to the pressures that are concentrated upon the heart of the Bible believer from Such we clearly have no special immunization. But what we do have is a divinely presented example of how we can trace a silver lining in the darkest of clouds. Paul, addressing the church at Corinth, said, "'For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble "'which came to us in Asia, "'that we were pressed out of measure above strength,' insomuch that we despaired even of life. His spiritual, his emotional, his psychological barometer was at its lowest level. But then he was led to the rock that is higher than I. And he said, but we had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God which raiseth the dead. In other words, he was saying to the church at Corinth that the one who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, it is in him we trust that he will yet deliver us. When you think it's all over, when you think uh, the darkness is about to envelop you With an intensity that will suffocate every part of your being. God is able to raise you up again. But there's a question that I've got to ask. Why should God allow you or me to go through such difficult times? What's the reason? if he is going to deliver us why should he allow us to go through those times in the first place? There is an answer and Paul gives us the answer by the Holy Spirit that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit centered upon that ministry is centered upon comforting the comforter shall come and in order that you and I can comfort other people we must go through experiences in life that serve as a classroom as a tutorial in order that when we come through at the other end, we'll be able to put our arm around some other dear soul and express to them the comfort that we have been comforted of God. In other words, what you're passing through, what I'm passing through, what God's people pass through, is an extension to your ministry. It is not a removing you from the ministry. It is an extension to your ministry so that you might testify and say from the depths of your heart, when my heart is overwhelmed, he led me to the rock that is higher than I. But what about those who are overwhelmed by sin? Those who are not saved. Those who, if they were to face death today, they would be eternally separated from a holy and a righteous God. The way for you, as was the way for us, is the way of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ died and shed his precious blood to provide the sacrifice that God required for sinful men and women just like you and me. It's not the church that saves us. It's not our religiosity that redeems us. It is only the precious blood of Christ that brings to us this very clear distinction that it's either heaven or else it's hell. It would be a tragedy if you went out into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing a gnashing of teeth. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Thank you for listening. I trust that God will graciously write his word upon your heart. And can I say this to you? While the minister, in this case myself, is honored to minister to you, can I say to you that this word ministers to my heart? just as it ministers to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We're going to say.